Right. Good evening, everyone. If you would go ahead and grab a seat right now. As you grab a seat, if you have a Bible with you, either on your phone, your mobile device, or a hard copy with you, go ahead and go to 2 John, one of the shortest books in the Bible, right toward the end, very easy to miss. We'll continue our first, second, and third John series tonight. We'll be in 2 John um, this evening. But before we get started, I want to take a moment to acknowledge what day it is. Today is, in fact, Veterans Day. Uh, and so I want to ask something, yeah, for those of you in the room, if you are a veteran, um, and I'm not sure who we might have here, but if you are a veteran, would you stand to your feet so we could recognize and, and honor you today? Um, very, very good. Um, and so I, we want to say thank you. For, you can stay standing if you, if you don't mind. Um, we, we would love to honor you. And there's another group I want to honor as well because we want to thank those who are veterans. We also want to acknowledge and thank uh, those who are family members of veterans, who have brothers or sisters or um, parents or grandparents who have served in the military. If you are um, related um, to a veteran, would you stand up as well um, just so we can take a minute to say thank you to you too. Um, we, we know that People who are related to veterans have birthdays missed and live under sort of the weight of that uh, many, many times. So uh, for those of you standing, I would love to just pray over you to recognize uh, the day that it is uh, and to say thank you to those of you who have served, those of you online who have served, uh, and to those of you who are family members of those who have served for your sacrifice um, for our freedoms. Father in heaven, I thank you for Veterans Day. I thank you for an opportunity to pause and to recognize those um, who take the life we take for granted who took that in their hands, who sacrificed for that, who gave toward that. God, I thank you for our veterans, and I pray that today, this week, they would feel honored and seen and recognized for who they are and what they've done. I thank you for the family members standing who know what it's like um, to have someone in their life who, who, who risked it all and, and who stepped into this. God, may they feel honored and seen and celebrated this week. God, thank you for the veterans who allow us the freedom to even gather in a church like this. Not everyone alive today, not every Christian gets to do this. We want to thank you for that, and we thank you for them. We pray it in Christ's name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Thank you. You may have a seat. All right. So as I mentioned, we have been in a first, second, and third John teaching series. Last week, Pastor Brian Williams finished off the book of First John. This week, we are going to look at the entire book of the Bible, all right? You're going to get an entire book of the Bible in one night. Uh, this is the book of 2 John, and then next week we will go to 3 John. I want you to know what we're going to cover tonight is the second shortest book in the Bible. In the Greek language it was written in, it's 245 words. But the next week's going to be even shorter, it's 219 words. The sermon, unfortunately, will not be shorter. Um, but, 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 but we're looking at these very short books of the Bible, and in fact, I think they're almost so short that they're easy to kind of skip over, or they're easy to read and be like, I read a whole book of the Bible today, but not really get anything out of and so my hope tonight is just to kind of open you up to this book of 2 John to help you understand what this book is all about. And if I were to give you two words that this book in the Bible is all about, the two words you're going to hear me talk about all night tonight, this book is about false teaching. It's about false teaching. The, the book we're going to look at tonight is obsessed with, John in this letter is obsessed with, the people of God understanding the danger to their souls of people teaching false things about God. When I talk about false teaching, I'm not talking about what's taught in the schools or curriculum or ideas that are out there. I'm talking about people in the name of God, standing in front of God's people, teaching things that are false. And I wanna to begin tonight by making a bold claim, but an important claim. And what I want you to internalize as you think about the book of 2 John, I want you to understand that false teaching is the single greatest threat to the people of God in every age. That false teaching, 
people saying false things in the name of God is the single greatest threat to the people of God in every age and in every generation. Now, for some of you, that might sound overly dramatic. For some of you, it might sound like this is a self-serving thing from a teacher saying this. But I want you to think about it deeply, and I want you to consider everything that can go wrong when the people of God start to believe false teaching in the name of God. Because there is no teaching in the world that is more dangerous than teaching that is attached to God's name, his authority, and his commands. Let me put it to you this way. I want to show you 10 historical examples of false teaching. 10 historical examples that will give you a sense of how profoundly dangerous it is when you and me, as followers of Jesus, begin to internalize things about God that just aren't so. Uh, The first example takes us all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. False teaching brought sin and death into the world. What do I mean by that? I mean that if you go all the way back to the story of Adam and Eve, you have Adam and Eve and they are tempted to eat this fruit from this tree that God told them not to eat. And Satan comes in. And what does Satan do? Does he force the the fruit down their throat? No, what does he do? He says, surely you will not die. In fact, if you eat this, you'll become like God. He taught them something false and that brought sin and death and destruction into the world. You fast forward through the rest of the Old Testament, you've got the nation of Israel and it'll just get real intense, real fast. Listen, false teaching is what created child sacrifice in ancient Israel. When idolatry and false teaching about false gods that wanted you to sacrifice your children so that your crops will grow or sacrifice your firstborn so that you'll have more children. This is false teaching and people believed it and it led to the death of children. The unnecessary, brutal, completely mind-boggling death of children is the result of false teaching. Listen, I want you to understand that false teaching led to the death of Jesus and his followers. Why was Jesus put to death? He was put to death because he was making claims about being the Messiah. And the people were being taught that he was a blasphemer. The people were being taught that he was worthy of death when he was worthy of exaltation. It was false teaching that put Jesus on the cross. It was crowds stirred up by false teachers that said, crucify him, crucify him. And those same crowds, those same enemies of Jesus would put each and every one of his followers to death, persecute them, kill them, banish them to islands. Listen, it was false teaching that permitted the Crusades and the Inquisition. Now, the topic of the Crusades is a complicated one in church history. The topic of the Inquisition is this horrible blemish on church history. But whatever we say, whether it's the Crusades that says it's okay to kill people in the name of God, or the Inquisition that says it's okay to burn heretics at the stake, whatever it is, it was false teaching that allowed that. It was somebody in the name of God saying it's okay to use violence as long as the other person is wrong. Listen, I want you to understand that it was false teaching that allowed chattel slavery in North America. You might ask the question, how does a country founded upon the freedom and liberty that Christ proclaims become this horrible experiment in chattel slavery? And yes, there was slavery all over the world, but how does it get instantiated here in our country? And the answer is false teaching. It's people teaching that the Bible was okay with this. In fact, that the Bible celebrated it and it was what we must believe. Not everyone believed it, but enough people took in that teaching for this to be a horrible part of our nation's history. Listen, I want you to understand that false teaching created, we've talked about this, a damaging purity culture. 
In the last century where people were taught things about their body and taught things about sex, that if you ever have sex, you're ruined for life, or if you ever have an impure thought, God doesn't love you. There's a kind of purity culture that was taught, and it caused damage. Listen, I want you to know that false teaching keeps millions in poverty all around the world. Like there's a health and wealth prosperity gospel that says the reason you are not wealthy is because you're not faithful enough. And so those people think if they give money to some preacher who has a private jet, that they'll somehow become healthy and wealthy. And it keeps millions in the majority world in poverty. Listen, number eight, false teaching has emptied, million, has emptied once full churches. Um, there are churches that used to be steadfast about the gospel, steadfast about the Bible, and they drifted into some kind of doctrinal error, and their pews are empty now. Like, they've just lost people. And I don't mean their attendance goes up and down. I just mean people no longer want to come because the word is no longer being preached. Listen, number nine, false teaching has led millions to compromise their faith. In a world today, I talk about this all the time, that if your faith matches up perfectly with 21st century Western American culture, there's something wrong. But false teaching allows us to make those two things one. And then finally, I want to say this so clearly, false teaching has caused some Christians to needlessly die in this pandemic. Like, I want to be so clear. Um, I know of at least one individual, and maybe you know of others, who have bought into some ideas about this pandemic. And listen, we have all sorts of different views on COVID, right? On masks or vaccines or tests or how serious or not serious it is, political response. We can have lots of diversity in this room. Here's the one thing as a Bible teacher I will stand here and tell you. You are never once promised in the Bible that if you trust in Jesus, you'll never get sick and die. You are not promised that. And there are Christians I know who have bought into that idea and gotten sick, and at least one that has died because of it. So, so listen, false teaching is not a joke. It's not a game. I look at this individual I know and I go, he was taught that if he just had faith, he didn't have to worry about illness, and it cost him his life. And so I just want the stakes to be so high for you tonight. This is not a matter of like, you're supposed to have good theology, and I want you to know what all these big words mean. No, 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 no. I want you to understand the depth and the power of false teaching. I want you to know how serious it is in your life. I want you to know that the great atrocities of history happened because of ideas that human beings started to believe. Like I said, I'll put it this way to you tonight. The false teaching destroys people because ideas have consequences. You've heard me say this before. The ideas you start to bring into your brain, the things you start to think about, they have consequences. They play out in the real life. And if you are not careful about what ideas you bring into your mind, it will play out with consequences in your life. Uh, like, let me put it to you this way. So um, I don't know what your diet is like, like what you eat on a day-to-day basis. Some of you eat real healthy. Some of you don't eat so healthy. Some of you are even sure what you eat. Um, but one of the things that I know uh, is that I tend to, if I'm not careful, just kind of consume what's ever around me. And so the other day I was consuming something that probably no one here who is sanctified ever eats, uh, but I was consuming Cheeto puffs, okay? Now, so, yeah, Cheeto puffs are like, hallelujah, because Cheetos are like, okay to me, but Cheeto puffs, I could eat those all day until like there's deep shame in my body, Dif- different sermon and issue. But, but, but here's what I've learned. When it comes to like eating stuff, and I'm not down on Cheeto puffs. You wanna eat Cheeto puffs, go ahead. I enjoy them, God's great gift. But here's one of the things that you, you're kind of taught to do when you're thinking about your health. It's like, turn the package over and look at the ingredients. And you start to read through it, and you probably can't see this, but you start to see words that you could never pronounce. You start to see things, and you're like, riboflavin? Is that good? Is that not good? And you start to think about that. But here's what all of us understand intuitively. What I put into my body will shape my physical health, right? 
Like all of us get this intuitively, whether it's Cheeto puffs or something totally different. What I consume into my body will affect my physical health. And I need someone to hear me tonight that what you put into your mind will shape your spiritual health. Like I want you to know that your spiritual health depends on you identifying and rejecting false teaching. That if you want to be healthy and thriving spiritually, you must be able to identify what's false and reject it. Because if you start to absorb into your mind ideas that are false, it will lead to disastrous results in your life. I want you to see this in 1 John, this real short letter here. It begins simply with this verse in in verse one, these words, it says the elder. Now I know you all love it when I stop on just like one word, but this is important. John introduced himself, not in this one as John, but as the elder. The, The word in the Greek language, if you're interested in this, is the word presbyteros. It's where if you've ever heard of a Presbyterian church or ever attended a Presbyterian church, that's the word, presbyteros, Presbyterian. It's the word in the New Testament for elder. And in the New Testament, the model of governance that is given is that there are elders who oversee the church. Elder doesn't mean old. Elder means someone who has the spiritual authority over a church. Here in our church, we have a group of elders These individuals get together and they set the direction, they set the intention, the vision, but most importantly, they teach the doctrine of this church. And if I or anyone else were to get on this stage and teach something that is contrary to what they see in the scripture, contrary to the doctrine they have set for this church, I would be called before them. And so what we have here in a local church is a plurality of elders. It's not just one elder. It's a group of elders who oversee the teaching, doctrine, vision, and direction of our church. And if you want to think about false teaching, I want you to understand this deeply. I want you to know that false teaching tends to thrive where elders aren't around. I want you to know that false teaching tends to thrive among the unaccountable, among those who don't have elders they submit to, who don't have anyone in their life who's calling them out, who don't have anyone in their life who's checking them, who don't have anyone in their life who's pulling them aside and saying, hey, what you taught is not in accordance with what the, t- with the, what the scriptures teaches. And, and so my hope for you, is that you would always be the type of person who is part of a local church submitting to the elders of that church. And if you think submitting is something that is below you, then discipleship is something that is above you. Submitting to the elders is something we all do. Submission is not some dirty word. It is a beautiful New Testament word for humbling yourself and saying, I am willing to stand under the authority of someone else. And if you are unwilling to stand under anyone's authority, I'm concerned for your ability to follow after Jesus. We all stand under authority. I stand under authority. I want to be an accountable man to the elders of this church. I want to be the type of individual that doesn't just teach and say whatever I want to say. I want to be accountable. And I want the teachers you listen to, the preachers you listen to, to be accountable people. I want them to be the type of people that are accountable, not just the person on YouTube or on Instagram or on Apple Podcasts that you just listen to and like. I want you to listen to someone who is accountable to someone else because false teaching, Heresy, ideas that don't belong in your brain, they thrive among the unaccountable. Again, it says the elder, this presbyteros, this person who has spiritual authority over the flock. It says to the lady chosen by God and to her children who I love in the truth. Let's give you a beautiful metaphor that's found all throughout the scripture. Um, God, all throughout the Bible, is described as a father, as a bridegroom, as a he And sometimes I can feel like, okay, well, God's a he, but I want you to always know that the people of God, whether it be the nation of Israel or the church, is always described as a she. Here it's described as the chosen lady, the lady chosen by God. Who's the lady chosen by God? 
It's not an individual, it's the church. The church is described as a she, this bridegroom and this bride of Christ. And then there's these children, which is us. It's like us as part of this. This is the metaphor, this family metaphor of the church that we see in the New Testament. This is what it is, the elder to the lady chosen by God and her children, who is, who, whom I love in the truth. It goes on to say, and not only I, but all who know the truth, because the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. Here in verse three, let me point out a word group here that you'll see. Grace, mercy, peace, truth, and love. Each and every one of these words is central to what it means to have a right theology, a right thinking about who God is. And one of the great dangers in this false teaching that we're talking about tonight, one of the great dangers in you falling into false teaching is that you would lose track of one or more of those words, that you would exclude some of them, and that you would exalt other ones. Like the way I want to put it to you tonight is this, that false teaching, the false teaching is usually not about, or is usually about subtraction, not addition. What do I mean by that? The false teaching you are most likely to fall into is not usually addition. What do I mean by addition? It's like if someone came to you and they're like, hey, have you read the New Testament? And you're like, totally, all the time. And they're like, have you ever seen the new New Testament? You're like, what? They're like, yeah, there's an additional 25 books and they're really cool. I think most of you would be like suspicious of that. I think most of you would struggle to like buy into that. Like, like usually false teaching doesn't come up and say, here's some brand new thing. Sometimes it does, but I think that's actually easier to spot. The false teaching I'm more worried about some of us absorbing is not the addition of random other things to the Bible or to the doctrines of Christ, but it's the subtraction. It's taking away one of those words we talked about. It's taking away one of these core features of what it means to be a believer. Well, like, let me put it to you a few ways. Again, we looked at the words grace, mercy, peace, truth, and love. Can I convince you tonight that if you remove truth, or I'm sorry, if you remove grace, you get legalism and condemnation. Well, like there are churches and there are teachers and there are pastors who preach in such a way that there is no grace. And so they say you're saved by grace, but what they really communicate is that if you ever stumble, if you ever walk in sin, if you ever lie or look at porn or sleep with someone who's not your wife, you're going to hell. And I want you to know that false teaching can very easily remove grace and you get legalism, the idea you have to earn your salvation or condemnation. Listen, the next word here is mercy. You remove mercy and you get cruelty and pain. You get pastors standing up in the middle of a pandemic, chiding and mocking and belittling Christians who are concerned about a disease. You get individuals standing up there being rude and condescending and harsh and mean toward people who disagree with them or people who have doubt in their faith. Like we are called as the people of God to be filled with mercy and false teaching can easily start to slip in when mercy gets pulled into it. False teaching. And the next one we're gonna see here is peace. You remove peace and you get division and anxiety. Like I've told you this before, beware any kind of Christianity that does not lead you to peace. Beware any kind of Christianity where you leave a church service and you're stirred up and anxious about the future of our country. And you're stirred up and anxious about whether or not you're going to be saved. You're stirred up and anxious and you're mad at people out there. If you leave church and this constant feeling you have is anxiety and anger and madness and wanting to go fight people, I just want to suggest you might be sitting under false teaching. 
The next one is truth. You remove truth and you get relativism and chaos. Is that any shock to you that about 50 years ago, people started saying there's no such thing as absolute truth and now we live in the era of fake news and alternative facts? Does that surprise you at all? It shouldn't. An entire generation that's removed truth and what do we have? We have chaos. We have relativism. We have your truth and mine, this mind-boggling idea that somehow there's nothing that's actually true. And then finally, love. You remove love and you get power and you get oppression. Like when you remove love from the dynamic of Christianity as the central animating force of Christian faith, the central animating force of the Christian, you get this desire for political power. You get this desire to crush and dominate other people. Again, the great heresy, the great false teaching I'm concerned for you for is not that someone will say something you've never heard of. It's that they'll try to slip in a kind of Christianity that is devoid of grace or mercy or peace or truth or love. And that's what we have to be aware of. It goes on in verse four, it says, it has given me great joy to find that some of your children are walking in the truth, just as the father commanded us. And now, dear lady, in other words, now church, I'm not writing to you a new command, but one we've heard since the beginning. I ask that we love one another and that this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. And so one of the things that I wanna juxtapose here in verses four and five and six is that the great joy he has is that his children are walking in the truth. And then what does he immediately connect three different times? He has that they're walking in the truth and then he says, love, next slide, love and love. And I want you to understand this. I've been talking about this already through the series, but I wanna just hit it over and over and over again. That in biblical Christianity, love and truth go together. Love and truth go together. You don't get to have one without the other. You don't get to be a truth kind of Christian who doesn't love people. And you don't get to be a loving kind of Christian who doesn't speak truthfully. This is true for your life. It's true for your spiritual development. It's true for who God is and what he's about. God is love, but God also speaks truth. I also want you to know that you, <laughs> I've said this before. I want you to say it again, that you are, if you are lying to someone, you are not loving them. If you are lying to someone, you are not loving them. When you lie to someone in your life who is walking down a destructive path, you are not loving them, you are being cruel to them. When you do not speak truth in a situation where it is required that someone needs to speak up, you are not being loving in that moment, you are harming them, you're destroying them. Love and truth, they go together. And why does love and truth go together? Because truth can sound so harsh and love can sound so warm. Here's why speaking the truth to someone is to love them. Because truth corresponds with reality and reality always wins. Reality has a vote and it always wins. And like there's ways that this is so obvious, right? Like if you knew someone, and I'm serious about this, who has like a mental illness and they're actually imagining things that are happening in the world. We deal with people like this at the church that come to us for counseling. It is not loving to play into that fantasy. It is harmful. It is hateful to do that. Like you think of someone in your life who's bought into a conspiracy theory. It is not loving for you to entertain that. It's not loving for you to say it's no big deal. They can believe some silly fantasy. It is not loving. But then let's get to some stuff that might get a little more real. You have an issue with your roommate and your roommate is causing pain. Your roommate is causing issues. You have a few roommates and everyone knows this person is the issue. Do you know that it is not loving of you to like sit and talk behind her back but never actually confront her about that? That is not love. 
Let's say there's something going on in your family and someone is just destroying the dynamic of your family. It is not love for you to lie to them and say there's no issues. It is love for you to step into that situation and speak the truth. Listen, love is not this nice sentimental thing you see in Hallmark cards and television and movies. Love can sometimes be an uncomfortable position to be in, but we cannot love people if we're not willing to speak the truth. Why? Because the truth corresponds with reality and reality always wins. Reality always gets a vote. And if there's someone in your life who is walking in untruth, walking in unreality, it will always lead to their destruction. But if there's someone in your life who is walking in the truth and you can help get them there, you are loving them. You are caring for them. Even if it puts you in a place where you feel uncomfortable. John Mark Comer says it this way. He says, reality does not adjust itself to our illusions. And this is what we need to know. that truth and love in biblical Christianity go together. Verse seven goes on this way. It says, I say this because many deceivers who did not acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ is coming in the flesh have gone into the world. Any such person is a deceiver and the antichrist. So what happens here? There are deceivers who have gone into the world. In other words, there are people who are deceiving Christians, speaking in the name of God, teaching falsely, saying things that aren't actually so. And what do they not do? They do not acknowledge that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Now, this may surprise you. In our world today, so many people I talk to who aren't believers struggle with the idea that Jesus was divine. They like the idea that Jesus was a good teacher or a moral guy or a revolutionary, but the idea that he was God was hard for them to wrap their minds around. But in this culture, it was the opposite. They could buy into the idea that Jesus was God. He was this powerful divine figure. But the idea that Jesus had flesh the Greek word sarks, that he had skin and bones and tissue and blood, that he would have all the things we have. That's what they couldn't handle. They could handle the idea that Jesus was divine. They couldn't handle the fact that he was flesh. So what happens in this moment? What happens is the fact that Jesus is divine, something we affirm as good, is exalted. And the idea that Jesus actually came in the flesh is put down at a cost of it. We want to be a people who are able to say Jesus is fully God and fully man, Right? You want to be able to do both. But here's what often happens in false teaching. The idea that Jesus is God is exalted. And the idea that Jesus came in the flesh is put down. Like I'll put it to you this way, that false teachers usually take a good thing and then make it an ultimate thing. This is what false teaching often does. They take a good thing that we should celebrate, that we should want, that we should be for, and then make it an ultimate thing. And anytime you make a good thing, an ultimate thing, you're in the territory of false teaching. Let me give you five examples. Five examples loose in our world today. False, or, or five examples that you will see over and over and over again. If you read the news, listen to the dialogue, the conversation happening in our culture. Five examples. I almost promise one of them will make you mad. Here we go. Number one, Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism makes patriotism ultimate. Patriotism is a good thing. Is the right thing to have a love for your country. I'm not talking about a kind of like my country over everything, just like an inbuilt love for your country. It is a good, right thing that we can celebrate. But when you make that ultimate over God and his world and his mission for this world, when you make country ultimate over God and you wrap the flag and the cross together and say, these are the same thing, you have entered into dangerous false teaching. That's what you've done. 
And I want you to be aware of any place or any time that tries to make the flag of the United States or or the name of the United States of America greater than the name of Jesus. Because one day, a hundred million years from now, the United States of America will be forgotten about, but Jesus will reign forevermore. And, And listen, I love my country to my core, but my Jesus is the one I worship, okay? So what do I want to make ultimate? I don't want to make patriotism ultimate. I want to make Jesus ultimate. So again, Christian nationalism is going to make this error, this error where Jesus is kind of secondary and you exalt patriotism to the top. Here's number two. Secular progressivism makes equality ultimate. Equality, the idea that we would have equal rights and equal opportunities, the idea um, that people would be treated equal irrespective of who they are or where they came from, that is a good thing. But when you raise that up to the ultimate and say everything else in this world is subordinate to it, you get into an ideology that can cause problems. When you get into this idea that that you actually need everyone to be equal in every single way and every single thing, you end up down a road that will ultimately cost you. Uh, Like I want you to be aware of when good things like equality, good, healthy things that we should celebrate are made the ultimate thing, set on the highest pedestal. Uh, Like let me give you another one. Naturalistic, naturalistic materialism makes science ultimate. So if you're under the belief that like science explains everything, science the greatest, listen, science is a good thing. As Christians, there's no competition. There's no conflict between science and religion. We can celebrate both because God came up with all of it, okay? And yet if we ever want to exalt science above everything and say we're going to trust the science more than everything, we're going to love the science, it's all about the science. When we exalt that above everything, we find ourselves in a world completely devoid of God where everything is explained by biological chemistry and by the laws of physics. And that is not the Christian worldview. That is not what we believe. And when you exalt something that is good, again, science is a good thing, not a bad thing. When we make it the ultimate thing, it causes problems. You've heard a lot about this one recently. We talk about critical theory. Critical theory makes power dynamics ultimate. And here's the good thing. We should be aware of power dynamics. We should be aware of the fact that there are people who have power over other people in this world, and that can cause problems if we're not aware of it, problems in ways we don't even understand. But when you suggest that the dominating, animating force of this world is power rather than the love of God, you have made something ultimate that doesn't belong in that spot. That's what we want to be aware of, exalting something as ultimate that doesn't belong in that spot. And then listen, finally, prosperity theology. The idea that if you just believe in Jesus, you'll be healthy and wealthy and everything will go well for you. You'll have a private jet and you'll never get sick. Listen, prosperity theology makes health and wealth ultimate. Health, being healthy, that's a good thing. I want to celebrate that. Being wealthy, if you're wealthy, praise God for what he's given you. But when you make that an ultimate thing, you end up subordinating what God has really made ultimate in this world. Can I just summarize this whole part of the sermon in this way? Can I invite every single one of you in this room to be skeptical of any teaching that does not recognize Jesus as ultimate, that doesn't exalt God and who he is, that doesn't have God at the pinnacle of things, that doesn't have Jesus Christ who came in the flesh to live and die for your sins and for mine. If he is not ultimate in your thinking, your theology, your teaching, if it's not Jesus who's ultimate, you're always gonna find yourself running into trouble. Be suspicious, be skeptical of any worldview or teaching that is not going to exalt Jesus as the ultimate one seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father. For him are all things. Through him are all things. In him all things hold together. I want you to see how it continues in this way in verse eight. It says, watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but you would be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. And whoever continues the teaching has both the Father 
and the sun. I love this phrase here. We want to be aware of anyone who runs ahead. I think the best way to understand that phrase of who we should be aware for are the people who try to get out ahead of the Bible and say, yeah, the Bible's one thing, but let me tell you what you really need to know. Yeah, the Bible's that old-fashioned document that thousands of years old. Let me tell you what you really need to know about God, as if we here in the 21st century have really figured everything out, and those silly little Bible people, what do they know? Be aware. Be aware of the person who runs ahead. Be aware of the person who starts teaching in such a way um, that suggests that the Bible ought to be left behind, and we should run ahead to something else. So I want to talk about false teachers, and um, I want to try to get our head around um, what that means and what we can be aware of. But I want to start with a little caution, and if I can just caution someone in this room. Um, let me give you a metaphor here. False teaching is not about state borders. False teaching is about national borders. So, so let me put it for you this way. If, if you live in Idaho, you're still part of the United States of America, right? If you live in California, you're still part of the United States. If you live in Texas, if you live in Mississippi, like if you live in any of those places, but if you're like, I live in Canada, like that's a national border issue, right? And so when we talk about false teaching, what I'm not trying to do is to get us to like fight and declare a false teacher, someone who lives in a different state of what is Christianity. And so here's the metaphor. Like if someone disagrees with me on baptism and they want to baptize infants, I don't personally hold to that theology. And yet I consider them part of the Christian family. If someone wants to talk to me about the age of the earth, whether it's an old earth or a new earth, I believe all of those are, this is a, that's, a, that's a state issue, not a national issue. They're part of the family. If they want to talk about speaking in tongues and they have a different view on that, they're part of the family. They're part of the nation. They're part of what it is to be part of the Christian church. But if someone declares that there is no such thing as sin or a need for forgiveness from it, that's a national issue for me. Like if you don't think sin is an issue at all or Jesus needed to die for anything, I think that puts you outside of Orthodox Christianity. If you're going to deny the deity of Jesus, say Jesus was just a nice teacher, he wasn't really God, I think that puts you outside of Christianity. If you're going to deny the authority of the Bible at all, I think that puts you outside of Christianity. So what do I want to distinguish between? I do not want us to look at some other church who is teaching and preaching the gospel, the basic truth of what we believe about Jesus, but has a few different ideas than us. Our job is not to declare them false teachers. Our goal is to look at the national borders, the big picture. And if that's confusing to you, let me give you seven different kinds of false teachers, seven kinds of false teachers that I want you to look out for, um, seven kinds of false teachers that I want you to keep an eye on uh, and be aware of in your own life. Here's number one. Number one is the heretic. The heretic, the person who teaches something that is clearly not found in the Bible. The person who teaches something that is clearly contrary to scripture. It's not like a debatable thing. It's not like, mm, Christians see this one different. It's like someone who comes in and is like, there's actually 25 gods, like heresy. That's not in the nation. Like that's not in the Christian church. Like that's not us. So there's the heretic. And here's the test for the heretic. Is what they're teaching taught by the Bible? Because if it's not, if what they're teaching is directly contradicted from the Bible, you have every reason to say, this is false teaching. And I don't need to receive this. Like, again, you need to be the type of person who's aware of what goes into your mind. The food you put in your body will determine your physical health. What you allow into your mind will determine your spiritual health. But where the heretic. False teacher number two is the charlatan. The charlatan. The charlatan is one who is in it for preaching for fame or glory or riches or money or platform. It's the individual who preaches in such a way that all of the attention lands on them. All of the glory lands on them. You leave talking about them and thinking about them. And, and listen, this one can be hard. 
Because sometimes people preach and they end up getting a big platform or accumulating some money. But here's the test question. Who does this preacher present as the hero of the story? Because if you have a preacher you love to listen to, and every time you listen to that preacher, you go away thinking about how great the preacher is, there might be a problem. Like, what do we want to do? We want to listen to preaching. We want to listen to teaching that tries to exalt the name of Jesus above every other name. And the charlatan, the one who makes it all about them, the one who builds the entire ministry, the entire sermon around them, is someone to watch out for. Third false teacher is this, the false prophet. It's the individual who claims that something is going to happen, who claims God says something, but that doesn't correspond with reality. It's the person who gets up before an election and says, this is what the outcome of the election is going to be, and then it doesn't come out that way. It's someone who claims that the world is going to end, and then it doesn't end. Do you know that there was a book called 88 Reasons Jesus Will Return in 1988? Yeah, it sold bazillions of copies, and then he missed And do you know that next there was published a book called 89 Reasons He'll Come Back in 89? Like like, like that is just false prophecy when someone is predicting and saying, the Lord has told me this will happen and it doesn't happen. I swear we have every reason to not listen to that voice. What's the test? Did what they say happen as they said it would? Because if they didn't, our job is to not listen. Our job is to say, this is false teaching. This is a false prophet. This is someone who's claiming the mantle and the authority of God when they don't actually have it. False teacher number four is the uneducated. I don't mean this as a dig. I don't mean this in a mean way. Here's just what I've seen. Um, There are Christians who are either actors or celebrities or sports, like athletes on some level, and they're like really famous for some other reason. And then they start spouting off about Christian theology. And I want you to be aware that just because someone is famous and saying something about Jesus, we're tempted to be like, they love Jesus. I love Jesus. I'll listen to whatever they say. We don't want to do that. We want to be careful that we're not just listening to someone because they're like this really good-looking, rich, powerful celebrity. What's the test? Would you believe what they were saying if I said it? If your home church said it? If this place said it? Because if you wouldn't believe it if we'd say it, don't believe it because someone famous or good-looking or powerful or influential says it. What's the next teacher number five, false teacher number five, the pugnacious? Pugnacious is a great word if you can slip it into a sentence somewhere, Okay. But the pugnacious person is the one who's always stirring up a fight. They get up to preach and they get up and they're like, aren't you, you're mad, right? And you're like, I am mad. You're mad too. Okay, let's all be mad together. And then you kind of leave every time, just kind of stirred up and angry. And like their whole ministry is basically like those people out there. Yeah, they're the worst. Let's hate them, right? That type of preacher. Beware of that. And you might think that's silly, but can I tell you, the pugnacious false teacher works because it's really easy for us to hate people who aren't like us. It is really easy. It is really easy to listen to a preacher rip and despise groups of people, nationalities, different type of people for their sexuality or their gender or something and just rip on. It is so easy for all of us to dislike people who aren't like us. And I just so want you to be aware of the type of preacher who's going to stir you up to anger. Here's the test. Do you walk away from their teaching stirred up, angry, and looking for a fight? Because if you do, that is not the God of peace that is operating through them. May that never be so. False teacher number six of seven is the groundbreaker. The person who says, I have a new thought. I have a new revelation from God. No one's ever heard this before. Come this Sunday and you'll hear a word from the Lord no one's ever heard before. If you hear that, do not come that Sunday, okay? Like, like, like if you are hearing someone who's like, no one has ever heard this from God before and I'm about to speak it, run far, far away. What's the test? Would a believer in the first century recognize this teaching? Because if they don't, 
it's probably not truth. Listen, there's no new truth that's about to be revealed from God. There's no like brand new teaching that's groundbreaking. In fact, what we do in church is we proclaim the old, old story of Jesus and his love. That's what we do in this place. And if someone's claiming to have a fresh word, a fresh revelation, no one's ever heard of it. Be very, very cautious. And then finally, number seven, beware the false teacher. Number seven, the compromiser. Beware the compromiser. Beware the individual who is willing to tell you what you want to hear rather than what is actually true. Be willing, beware the person who is willing to compromise on issues that are, that are important to the right, like sexuality and abortion. Uh, beware uh, the person who's willing to compromise on issues like racism and poverty. Beware the preacher who will compromise on hell or abuse in the church. Beware the preacher who will not say hard things. And here's the test. The test, are they willing to say things that are unpopular with the people they're speaking to? Like, here's one of the things I hate to see when they're like, that preacher's so bold. He got up and endorsed a Republican in front of a bunch of conservatives. That is not bold, okay? It is not bold to rally a bunch of people who politically agree with you and endorse someone who all they, they all agree with. It is not bold in a more progressive church to get up and to talk about systemic racism. That is not bold. You want to look for the preacher who is willing to say things that are unpopular to the people he's actually speaking to who's willing to stand up and say, thus saith the Lord. And if you're angry with me, go to the word because I'm the messenger. That's what you want. The compromiser is the one who will always say what your itching ears want to hear, who will always say what you already believe. And I want you to beware that because it is so tempting to listen to preachers who preach what we already want to hear. But can I tell you, you do not need preachers in your life who will tell you what you already want to hear. You need preachers in your life who will tell you what you need to hear, who will tell you what will challenge you to your soul. And I want all of us to be the type of people who say, I'm not going to fall into the trap of listening to someone just because they're going to say what I want them to say. Listen, these are the seven types of false teachers. And I just want you to beware of them. And then can I just say this really vulnerably tonight? I want you to hold me to that same standard. Like, I don't want you to ever believe something from my lips just because I said it. Like if I ever say something and you go, I'm not sure I buy that. I'm not sure I like that. Rather than running out in disgust and never coming back, or rather than talking to someone about how much you hate me, maybe you can do that. You go to the Bible and you say, does the word of God teach what he says? And if the word of God contradicts me, go with God, reject me. Reject what I have to say. Like I'm just so desperate that we would be the type of people who are serious about false teaching, what comes into our mind. Because if we are not careful about what comes into our mind, it will destroy our spiritual health. Maybe we'd be a people who watch out for false teachers. Here's how the text ends tonight. It says in verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked works. In, in their wicked work. Here it's talking about not welcoming them into your house. It's not like you can't have them over for dinner. In the ancient world, it was all house churches, okay? So to have them in your house meant to like put them on the platform. There are all kinds of people who attend Calvary who don't believe the things we, we believe, and that is awesome. If that is you tonight and you do not believe the things we, we believe, we are so thrilled you're here. We will never give you a microphone to teach, okay? You do not get to get up here and say things we don't believe. That's what it's talking about here. Don't let them into your house means don't let them on your stage. Don't let them teach. Don't let them influence the assembly. Verse 12, he says, I have much to write you but I, I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk to you face to face so our joy may be complete. Didn't we learn that lesson in the last two years? That technology and communicating from a distance is like a nice substitute, but it's not the full thing. What's the full thing? Face to face so that our joy may be complete. 
And then finally, verse 13, end of the book, it says this. It says, the children of your sister who was chosen by God send their greetings. So it talks about the woman, the lady. We established that this is the church. And then he references someone else, the sister. Who's the sister? It's another church, another assembly, another group of Christians who are gathered to worship Jesus. And that's where I wanna end us on tonight. As we've talked about false teaching this whole night, I want us to understand that false teaching is a big deal because we stand in communion with churches all throughout the world with millions and tens of millions of churches and billions with a B, like billions of Christians all around the world who affirm these basic truths of who God is and what he has done and who he has revealed himself to be. And our job is not to come up with some brand new thing no one's ever heard before, but rather to stand in communion with the confession of faith of the believers all around the world. Like, let me close tonight by giving you something that Um, Some of you may have heard, maybe you grew up in a church that repeated this or said this, um, but there is an ancient formulation of our Christian faith, not found in the Bible, but I believe true to the words of the Bible. And that ancient formulation is called the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed. Some of you grew up maybe in a church that repeated this week after week, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of Christians this week in their church services have or will repeat the Apostles' Creed. And let me read to you the Apostles' Creed so you can understand what it is. It says, I believe in God the Father, the Almighty, the creator of heaven and of earth. Next slide. It says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, and he descended into hell. I highlight this, oh, go back, go back. I highlight this because so many people stumble over that phrase. Descended into hell simply means that Jesus bore in his body the wrath of hell so that you will never have to. Amen? Amen. That's what Jesus did. He descends to hell. He takes the wrath of God. He takes the separation, the alienation from God. Next slide says this. It goes on to say, on the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and he is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. Final slide. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church. Now, when you hear Catholic, you think the Roman Catholic Church, but that's not what this word meant. The word Catholic means universal. I believe in the universal church. There's Calvary Community Church, but then there's the church, Jesus's church, the bride he's coming home for. When we say we believe in the Catholic Church, we believe that there are Christians on every continent and every country and every place and every tribe and every nation worshiping Jesus. I believe in the communion of the saints, The saints is not like the super Christians, the better Christians. Child of God, if you have been forgiven by Jesus, you are a saint. You are a saint not because of your behavior and your accomplishments, but because of the accomplishment of Christ on the cross. He looks at you as a saint, which just means the holy ones of God. You and I are the saints. We believe in the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. This is the confession we make. When I talk about false teachers, when I talk about people who are gonna lead us astray, when I talk about people who are gonna lead us down a path, I'm not talking about every little nuance of theology and us fighting over every little thing. I'm talking about the core of who we are as a church and what we believe as a people. And while we're not a creedal people who are always gonna lean on this creed, I believe it articulates well what we believe as a church and what we stand in communion with billions of Christians alive today with the Lord now all over the world confessing the center of what our faith is. Child of God, may you always and forever be a person who holds on to these core teachings of Christ, who identifies any teacher who is trying to take you away from this core confession of who God is 
and how he has saved and rescued you through Jesus Christ. Tonight, I wanna end a little different than we normally end. I wanna ask you um, all in this room, if you would stand with me right now. Um, And what my plan is, is for us to read this Apostles' Creed out loud to affirm what it says about the scriptures, to affirm what it says about Jesus. If you're new or you're a guest tonight or you don't actually buy the things I just said, don't say it. I don't wanna make a hypocrite of you. I don't wanna ask you to do anything you don't believe. But if you're here tonight and you believe what I just said, I want you to say this out loud. And I want you to say it like you mean it. I'm gonna be honest with you. Sometimes we do the repeat after me things and it's pretty lousy in this room, but not this night, not this night. This night we declare with billions of Christians all over the world in every corner of the globe that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you believe that's true, would you read this creed with me tonight? We'll begin with this. It says, I believe in God, the Father, the Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. If you believe that, give me an amen in this place tonight. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess what is true. We confess that you are seated on the throne of heaven, that Jesus sits at your mighty right hand. We confess that he died for our sins, rose from the dead, took the wrath of God upon him. We confess, God, that one day he will appear in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We affirm the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the dead, and the life of the world to come. God, may you come in power to meet us here tonight. May we be a people who recognize what is true and what is false, what is good and what is bad. May we be a people who always cling to what is right and holy and true and good. Help us, God to reject false teaching. Help us, God, to receive your truth. God, even as we sing tonight, may you stir in our hearts a desire to know you deeper. We pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.